All right. Good morning. Good to see you today. Alpha is such a good ministry, so please, please take advantage of that. Um, if you're new around here, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you this morning, and I am going to jump right in today. We've got a lot to cover, and it's going to be exciting today, I promise. I'll start this way. You know, we all grew up in a, a family, different shapes, different sizes, different dynamics, but we all grew up in some sort of a family, and furthermore, we all grew up in one of those families. We all grew up in one of those families where there were some issues. For all of us in here, there was an aunt or an uncle or a cousin Eddie or, you know, one of these people who was just out there or angry or just a little off. Maybe it was your brother or your sister who went through a rough patch. Maybe they're still in a rough patch. Maybe it was one of your folks. Maybe it was even you. Maybe you were or are the family member with issues. But the truth of the matter is this. In the entire history of the world, there is no such thing as a family that doesn't have some issues. And I bring this up because today we are going to dive back into one of those families. And by the end of the morning, I promise you are going to feel so much better about your family issues. In fact, it's a pastoral guarantee today that the level of weirdness, failure, embarrassment, shame, guilt, and dysfunction you might feel about your family pales in comparison to what we will read about today in the Bible. And yet, I want to tell you at the outset, this is a redemption story. And as we get into it, you are going to doubt me. You are going to be tempted to not believe that redemption is possible in this situation, but you will be wrong. Because through all the weirdness and through all the pain and all the abuse and at times even all the sheer evil, God is going to be at work. If you have a Bible this morning, pull it out. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 38. If you need to grab a Bible out of the pew rack, there's one right in front of you. Pull it out. If you're using one of those, we will be on page 32 this morning. And as you turn, I'll just say this, 32, page 32. If you've been with us the last few weeks, the past four weeks, you know that we've been very systematically following the life of Joseph. But this morning, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to take a U-turn. We're going to do a bit of a flashback. You know how in a, in a really good movie sometimes, the story is cruising along in a real chronological way, and then all of a sudden, this, the scene flashes back to something that happened a long time ago, and you get a glimpse of what happened way back then so that you can better understand what is about to happen now. That is what we're doing today. Today is Flashback Sunday. And if you remember, in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph was a cocky young kid, loved most by his dad, who got a special robe. And then he had two very interesting dreams where he would rule over his family, and he decided to tell his family about those dreams. And then his 10 older brothers 
consumed with envy and jealousy, attack him, beat him up, and sell him into slavery. So Joseph has this tragic life-altering incident with his brothers. And then we continued his story and we followed what happened to him next. We spent the last three weeks looking and learning about where God has taken Joseph's life since that big moment. But the question that still hangs there for us is this. What about his brothers? What has become of them? What kind of men are Joseph's brothers turning out to be? And this is an important question because in chapter 42, right where we are in the story, the chapter we will look at next week, in this moment in Joseph's life, his life and the lives of his brothers are about to intersect again. They are about to merge together once more. 22 years Later, 22 years, scholars tell us, after they sold Joseph into slavery, they will once again stand face to face with their brother Joseph. But before we get there, we have to go back here and ask, what has God been doing in the lives of the brothers in the meantime? And Genesis chapter 38, where we'll spend our time this morning, gives us just a snapshot by following the life of one brother, the brother named Judah. Chapter 38, verse 1, buckle up. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. Now, the very first phrase as we jump right into this story is at that time. And if you remember back to chapter 37 where we left off, Jacob, the father of all these boys and one little girl, is in deep mourning because he just learned that his favorite son Joseph has been killed. And Jacob is distraught. We are told that he is absolutely inconsolable, that he is so grieved by this loss of his son that he refuses to be comforted and he even wishes death upon himself. That's where Jacob is. And now we read, at that time, Judah left. When his father was in his darkest hour, when his father was overwhelmed with grief and sadness, Judah left. Maybe the guilt was too much for him. Maybe the shame was just so heavy that all Judah can think to do is run. But this fact would have really stood out if you were an ancient reader because a son should never leave his father and his family in this kind of a moment. And so right away we can see that, Ju that Judah is going down a really, really bad path. Furthermore, we read that Judah meets a Canaanite woman, not the right kind of girl. He marries her, he settles down, and has three sons, Ur, Onand, and Shelah. Now the boys grow up, and we're told in verse 6 that Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Notice here how intentional the biblical author is at pointing out to us where Ur is in the birth order. 
right? In just two verses, he mentions it twice. Judah is the firstborn. It was very significant. Even in our day, that's significant, friends, because firstborn are still, even now, disproportionately the achievers, the leaders, their presidents and prime ministers and CEOs. And speaking as a firstborn in all humility, I do have to say, we are the best. (laughs) But most importantly, in the ancient world, the firstborn would be the heir to everything, the heir to the inheritance. They would get all the good stuff. Like John Ortberg says, who I'm very indebted to in this message, I got so much good stuff from him. He says it this way. He's talking about Ur as the firstborn. He says, that's why he is named Ur. He's older, handsomer, smarter, stronger, faster. But unfortunately, in this case, he's also wickeder. So God cuts him out of the story real fast. And this matters because in ancient Israel, where there wasn't any kind of national or social welfare system, and and widowed women in particular were very vulnerable, the law was that if a woman's husband died, it was her father-in-law's obligation to make sure that she was taken care of. And he would do this by having her marry his next oldest son. And that's exactly what Judah does. And here is where things start to get tricky. Onan, son number two, would presumably already have other wives because this is a polygamous culture. Whole nother sermon. So just pin that for now. But if Onan has a kid with Tamar, if they have a child together... That kid, who was still technically the son of his dead brother, that's the way it worked, he would get the firstborn inheritance. Right now, who will get the firstborn inheritance? Onan will get the firstborn inheritance. But if he has a child with Tamar, who will technically be his brother's child, that child, that son will get the firstborn inheritance instead of Onan, instead of his little tribe, instead of his crew and clan and kids. So Onan, he figures out a way to keep this from happening by preventing Tamar from getting pregnant. And I'll remind you, this is in the Bible. (laughs) Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Son number two down. Now, this passage right here is one that has been discussed time and time and time again from a number of different angles But the thing that's most important here, the thing the biblical author is driving at, the the really grievous sin being highlighted is this. This is a sin of injustice to this widow. She is the one being mistreated and wronged and not cared for. And it's actually the sin, by the way, of a greedy, envious, jealous brother. Right? who does not want his brother and his brother's kid to get what he wants to have. This is a greedy, envious, jealous brother. Does that sound familiar in this story? You see, 
The apple has not fallen far from the tree. Onan now begins to treat his brother through his brother's wife the same way that Judah once treated Joseph. And so let me talk for a minute here about Tamar because in this story, she would really be the tragic victim. The ancient readers would all feel for her because as weird as it is to us, she wants a good thing. She wants to honor her husband. She wants to have children for her family. Even though she is a Canaanite, a pagan woman, she wants to be a part of the story of the people of God, the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. And so far, so far, all Tamar has gotten is two wicked husbands and no children. So now, with the death of son number two, with the death of Onan, the ball is back in Judah's court. And his very clear moral obligation here, again in the ancient world, is to have her marry now his third son, Shelah. But here again is where the depraved character of Judah begins to show itself. And he secretly, we're told in the text, he secretly thinks to himself, this girl has ripped through two of my sons already, so there's no way I'm turning her loose on son number three. Fool me twice, right? Not three times. And so he tells Tamar in verse 11, you go, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. He is not taking care of his daughter-in-law the way he is supposed to. And let me just pause and ask you this. Do you ever do this, this thing that Judah does here? You know, you don't want to tell someone the real reason you are doing or not doing or deciding something because the truth is, is it's kind of embarrassing or shameful or maybe not even right. And so you come up with another excuse to justify your decision. You, you cover over your deception with a partial lie or a half truth to make yourself look better so you don't look quite as bad. Do you see how he does that here? Judah is now treating Tamar in the same way his son Onan did, the same way he treated his brother Joseph, and the story continues. The story goes forward, and Judah's wife now dies, and Judah moves through his grief pretty quickly. In fact, this story is loaded with contrasts, contrasts between different people, and one of them is the difference between the significant grief and mourning we see from Jacob in, ch in chapter 37 when he thinks Joseph's died, and then the significantly very brief mourning we see from Judah here. His, his wife dies, he grieves not very long, and again, this is just a little glimpse at this man's heart. His wife dies, he doesn't mourn long, and then all of a sudden, he's ready to date again. Except for the fact that he's not really an eHarmony guy or a Christian Mingle guy. He's more of a Tinder guy, and he swipes right. And if you don't understand that reference, good for you. <laughs> Judah is now on his way to a place called Timnah. And Timnah is... 
in the land of the Philistines, and it is not a good place. Bible trivia moment here. This is complete extra credit, but you can pick some up today. No one in the first service got it. Does anyone know what other Bible character goes down to Timnah to get into trouble? Samson. Becky Hanamura, good job. I always knew you were the smart one of the couple. Just kidding, Steve, kind of. Samson, Samson is the one who goes down to Timnah. Why? To find some ladies. And while he's there, he meets Delilah. And then things don't go well for him after that, right? Not a good thing because Timnah is not a good moral place. It might as well tell us in our story today, after a brief mourning period, Judah headed off to the red light district with a big wad of cash in his pocket. And if you think this story has been weird so far, it's about to get weirder. Verse 13. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and that, then sat down at the entrance to Eniam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. And at this point, we should all remember that it was in fact a goat's blood that Judah some time ago dipped his brother's coat in to deceive his father. And once again, Judah is using a goat to do evil. He still has not learned his lesson. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. That's Tamar. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Remember when I said this story was going to make you feel better about your family? Tamar will be, at the same time, this child's mother and Sister-in-law, your family's doing great. <laughs> but let's talk about what's happening here because this is truly radical and remarkable stuff. The Bible, friends, oh, so good. First of all, let's see some of the stark contrast between Judah and Joseph because they are being compared. Both have left their father's house to live in foreign lands, one by his choosing, one against his will. Both now have faced temptation, sexual temptation from a woman, Joseph with Potiphar's wife, and Judah with this prostitute that he meets on the road. And interestingly enough, this place where Judah picks up this prostitute, Eniam, it simply means this, eyes. You see, even in a place, even in a moment when Judah thinks, no one is watching. There are eyes. Because God is always watching. 
And we remember how so many times in Joseph's story, when God was seemingly silent, when God was seemingly not there, just Joseph trusted that he was. You see, even when God was silent, Joseph knew he was not absent. But Judah, Judah is not living his life with that same conviction. How about you? Even though it may be real easy to live like God's absent or distant or far away, do you live like he's present? Are you living like he is there with you all the time in every moment, even when you're seemingly alone or when no one's around or will ever find out? Do you know that the truth is that your heavenly father is with you and that he is longing for you to live a life that honors him? Well, Tamar gets three things from her father-in-law Judah in this moment. All of them would have been very personally identifying Significant things she gets. A person's seal, for example, one of the things, um, was a stamp that they used to identify themselves on an official document. It was unique to every person. So it's kind of like in this scene, Tamar now has Judah's credit card, his birth certificate, and his driver's license. She's got all three. And so Judah immediately, of course, sends the goat because he wants to get his things back, but no one can find this prostitute. No one can find her. And so finally, Judah just says, hey, let's just drop the whole thing because I don't want word getting out that I slept with a prostitute. It's kind of embarrassing for a guy of my stature. No kidding. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. Friends, you have to understand that even in the ancient world, this is remarkably brutal. This is such a a brutal and merciless moment. In fact, in the original language, this this is brilliantly written. It's actually just a two-word sentence, and it's meant to, com- to completely communicate a lack of compassion and empathy. It's just compassion and empathy void. He simply says, bring, burn. Your daughter-in-law is guilty of prostitution, and she is pregnant. Bring, burn. I know it's not fun to think about, but for just a second, imagine this moment, imagine this man, imagine his heart, his very own daughter-in-law pregnant with child. Bring, burn. You see, the biblical author wants us to see here just how far Judah has fallen since selling his brother into slavery. Because if you thought that that was the bottom for him, if you thought attacking and beating his brother and then sending him to a foreign land to be a slave, if you thought that was rock bottom for Judah, you are dead wrong. 
Since that moment, Joseph, he's been changing. He's been growing in faith and trust and integrity and character. But Judah, no, he's going the other way. His honor has only gone down. What has become of Joseph's brothers? What kind of men have they turned out to be? Well, in the case of Judah, the most evil and depraved kind you can imagine. Bring, burn. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. I love this lady. She's, as my kids would say, legit. And friends, this is such an artfully told story with layer upon layer upon layer, and it raises question after question after question. And so I'll say this, obviously, obviously, The moral of the story is, if you're a woman and your firstborn husband dies from wickedness and you marry his brother and he refuses to impregnate you and then he dies and your father-in-law won't let you marry the third son, just wait for your mother-in-law to die and pretend to be a prostitute and have your father-in-law's kids and then it will all work out in the end because like I said at the beginning, this is a redemption story. (laughs) Obviously, it's not the point because this is a... Weird story, isn't it? And typically, religious people get a little squeamish when this story is preached in church. It's a little bit weirded out. It raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? Questions like, couldn't Tamar have found a more wholesome way to deal with her problems? I mean, couldn't she have sold essential oils on Etsy or gotten a job at Nike or learned how to do computer coding or something? Well, I've said it before and I will say it again. The ancient world, much like our world around the globe today, friends, can be a very brutal place. The ancient world was an extremely immoral and brutal place, much, much like the, our world today, especially for women. Especially for women. You travel around the globe today, and it can, it can be real tough. There are tough places to live, and there are tough societies, and there are tough laws, and there are tough restrictions, especially for women. And I'm not saying women have it all good here, but I am saying if you travel around the world, it's a brutal place to be a woman, and it was a very brutal place back then in the Old Testament. And here's the truth. The Bible is not a fairy tale. It is a real book. This isn't Cinderella or or Ariel or Jasmine. There's no Prince Charming and a magic carpet come floating up. This is a real book written about real people who live in a real world. That's why it's so darn good. And there's great evil in this book. And humanity is fallen and broken. and, And the stories are complex and intricate. You see, one of the the dangers we face is overcomplicating the biblical message. But the other danger is oversimplifying it and not digging into it and mining out some of the deeper truths the scriptures have to offer us. Here, for example, in this story, 
Do you see how radically subversive this story is? Do you see how countercultural it is? Do you see how in the middle of a patriarchal world where women had no voice and were often abused, this story comes right in to make a strong, significant point? I'll quote, quote Ortberg again. Tamar is a woman who was marginalized because of her gender and her ethnicity and her status as a childless and now twice widowed Gentile woman. And furthermore, she is the victim of sexual misconduct. You think the Bible doesn't deal with these issues? You think they're new to us here today? 21st century, think again. He says this about Tamar. Instead of being forced into passive surrender, which the reader would expect, Tamar shows remarkable courage and initiative and determination and creativity. And in the end, she triumphs over an oppressor and an unjust system that is completely stacked against her. And she becomes part of the greatest story ever told. And friends, here is one of the messages today. But I believe the scriptures want us to hear from the story of Tamar. It's this. Maybe you're out there this morning. And if you are and you're a Tamar. If you're out there and in your own way this world feels stacked against you. Or you've been used or oppressed or mistreated or wronged or discriminated against. If as you walk through this life, everything just feels stacked up against you and oppressive and unfair, if you've had a story of abuse or neglect or mistreatment, then remember this about Tamar because it's true for you as well. God is with little Tamar. He is with her in her fight and he will use her for his plans and his glory and his kingdom in ways that, that she can't even imagine. In fact... This is where the story of Tamar seems to end. She's, she's not mentioned again in the Old Testament after this chapter, but she does show up again in the scriptures. Anyone know where? The third verse of the New Testament in the lineage of the great Savior and Redeemer and Messiah and Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God has used Tamar God says, Tamar, little Tamar, just fighting for a life. From her lineage comes the Savior of the world, God's one and only son, born to a virgin in Bethlehem. Tamar has a role to play. And in the process, by the way, she is used as a redeeming force in the life of a man who from all practical perspectives and human perspectives was so far from God, so corrupt and depraved, so steeped in evil that no one would have given him a second chance. Listen to this. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. Remember when Judah sold his brother into slavery? Remember when he was the ringleader? Remember when he was the one who said, Hey guys, let's not just kill him. We can actually make money off this deal and sell him into slavery. 
Remember when he did that? And he took his brother's coat and then he dipped it in the blood of the goat and then he brought it to his father. And what did he say to his father? He said, Dad, do you recognize this? Same word in Hebrew, it's the word nehar. It means to recognize, acknowledge, admit, know, or discern. You see, this is the turning point of Judah's life. This is the beginning of redemption for this fallen, broken, shame-filled, wicked man. Because all of a sudden, through the courageous acts of Tamar and God's work in her life, Judah begins to acknowledge and see and admit and know and discern and recognize who he truly is and who he truly has become. You see, friends, here's the deal. The New Testament says this. Time it again. God will use the weak to lead the strong. God will use the weak to lead the strong. That's what it says in the New Testament, but friends, here's the truth. This is how God has always worked. He has always used the poor and powerless and marginalized and downtrodden to shape and form and redeem those of us with power and privilege. And for Judah, it all starts with one word, Nahar. I recognize, I acknowledge, I admit, I know, I now see myself for who I truly am. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're here and you're a lot like Judah. Maybe your life has been heading down a path of darkness and depravity and dishonor and compromise. And maybe you're not as far gone as Judah. I hope you're not. Maybe you are, but the truth is this. You're on a path of living your life like God is nowhere to be found. And every day, you just continue to live that way and you just take one more little step and your heart is drifting just farther and farther and farther and farther away from the Lord. Friends, let me invite you this morning. If that's you, open your eyes. Open your mind, open your heart, and see and admit and acknowledge and recognize, like you to recognize where you are, who you're becoming, the road you're heading down, and where it is going, because it is not too late. Here's the truth. This story is not done for Judah. It's just the beginning. Even with all he's done, even with all the treachery, even with all the debauchery, even with all the sheer evil in his life, God's redemption is still available to him and it's available to you. Next week, we'll continue this story and we will walk this redemption road out with Judah as he once again meets his brother Joseph face to face. But this morning... This morning, let me ask you this. Will you open your eyes? Will you choose to see? Will you choose to look and know and admit and recognize where you really are, who you're truly becoming, what your relationship with God honestly is? And maybe you need to just pray this morning, God, help me to see myself honestly, help me to recognize, help me to acknowledge the truth about who I am and where I'm headed. And then when you do, you need to ask God to turn you, 
to turn your mind and heart and affections away from your shame and from your sin, away from the corruption you are entangled with, and ask him to begin to lead you down a path of living rightly with him. The New Testament has a word for this moment, this moment of nahar, this moment of recognition and acknowledgement. It's called repentance. Repentance, and it sounds like such a Bible word, and yet it is such a wonderfully life-giving, freeing word. It's the first step towards a relationship with God where he is now Lord and King and Savior of your life. It's a turning away from life on your own, life your own way, and a turning towards life with God his way. And so this morning, friends, if you want to do that, if you want to turn your life towards God, if you want to recognize and repent and turn away from your blind, selfish ambition, if you want to, like Judah, walk away from the sin and shame of life apart from God by the grace of Jesus Christ offered to you for free, let me just ask you to do that, beg you to do that, invite you to do that with everything I have. That's a decision you will never regret. That's a life that will never be boring. That's a life that will be filled with joy and hope and meaning and purpose in the up times and the down times. That's a life with the God of heaven and earth at your side and in control and leading and guiding and using you to do things that you can't even imagine. Friends, do not wait another minute to give your life to the Lord. And this morning, how you can do that is we're gonna come to these tables These tables are places where we recognize, where we remember, where we admit and acknowledge and see clearly how dependent we are on the grace of God offered in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection on the cross. It's a place where we encounter the power of God's restoring forgiveness for our hearts and souls. And friends, it's just like Tamar. God will be there for you. He will work no matter where you've been, what you've done, what you've faced. He promises to work in and through your life. And just like for Judah, God will be there. He will redeem you. He will forgive you. He will give you, even you, another chance. And then one after that. Do you want that kind of love today? Do you need that kind of grace today? Do you need a hope that will never fail you, a hope that won't go up and down with the circumstances of this world, but that will remain consistent with you always and through everything. Do you need the love of your heavenly father today? If so, I just wanna invite you in a moment of surrender, in a moment of humility, to just pray this prayer with me. In just a second, I'm gonna ask everyone in here just to bow their heads and I'm gonna pray a prayer. And if you wanna pray this prayer to the Lord, if you wanna turn your life towards him and begin to walk down his path for your life, you just pray these, these words that I'm praying in your own way, in your own words, in your mind, and you say them to God. You say them to the Lord of heaven and earth. I promise he will hear you and he will respond. If you need to rededicate your life, if you need to get back on track, if you've been walking with him and you've been off on your own road, then you pray this prayer. If you have never prayed it before and you've never been in relationship with Jesus Christ, pray this prayer today and begin walking that path. So I'm gonna pray. And if you need to pray it, you just again pray it with me. So let's all bow our heads. Father, this morning I'm gonna begin just by asking your spirit to 
empower and embolden and give courage to anyone in this room who needs to make a commitment to you, a commitment again or a commitment for the very first time. And we say to you, Lord, we start with just a confession that we can't do life on our own, that we've proven that we mess things up, that we are broken and fallen and sinful and selfish and that things do not go well when we are in control and so we confess our sin to you. We confess our brokenness to you. All of it. All that's happened, all that is happening and even that, that, that which will happen, Lord. And we ask for you to come move in to forgive us through your son's death and resurrection on the cross, we receive the grace, the forgiveness, the mercy that you have for us. And then we ask God that in, with that same grace you would propel us forward, that you would give us your spirit and empower us to live a life for you and with you and through you in this world. That we could be a part of your great kingdom story and advancing your will and ways in this world. That we would have eternal life that starts now and goes on forever, God. Thank you for your love. Thank you for this great news that we find in your son. And Father, now as we come to the table to receive this meal that you've given to us, we remember again who you are, who we are, how much we need you as we declare Jesus' death, his body broken, his blood shed for our sins and his resurrection, his victory over the grave that isn't just for him, Lord, but that is for all of us. And so we receive that and celebrate it and remember it and declare it today together. Father, in Jesus' name. One thing about Judah in this story is that the thing that gets his life, the thing that God uses to get his life back on track is Tamar, another person, right? And that's how God always, or a lot of the times anyway, seems to work, is through other people in our lives. So my relationships and the connections that Pastor Gabby were talking about earlier are so important. So let me encourage you those connections and just to be real clear I'm not talking about going out and getting a prostitute so that you can get closer to God this is not pretty woman I'm talking about connecting with some people who can help you and push you and encourage you and challenge you to walk with God more closely and follow his plan for your life to get involved don't just come on Sundays and sit in a pew but to get involved and connected with people here and begin to turn your life and walk down this road that God has for you and maybe one just kind of easy first step of doing that is to just ask some people to pray for you we got people every Sunday who would love to pray for you in the back I see Pastor Nick and Pastor Ted back in there and they would love to just bless you and pray for you and come alongside you and it's just a great way to step into community and I promise you God will use that he will start to turn you he will start that process of a new life when you open yourself up to someone else so take advantage of that today do life with God this week together this week and don't forget to stop and remember and see and recognize and think about am I doing life in a way that acknowledges that God is right here with me Live that way this week. Be the church, and we'll see you next week as we continue the story of Joseph. God